All right, Psalm 19. We're uh, coming to the end, in a sense, uh, to our initial foray, uh, foray into the Psalms. Uh, we'll return to John in two Sundays um, to uh, wrap up through Lent and a little bit beyond. And then we'll return to the Psalms uh, to bring us into summer. Uh, so uh, you've been enjoying them. So sorry, I'm going to take them away. But not really. Um, Psalm 19. Yes, not John 18. Psalm eight, uh, 19. See, I kept my bookmark there. That apparently was not a wise move on my part. All right. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we have the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, we have it. We've been granted it in our justification. And yet, we still need to grow in our understanding of the mind of Christ. A sanctification, so to speak, of our thought processes, as well as our thoughts. And so we ask that as we look here at your word, that you would be at work in us that you would grant us hearts to understand you and your word, that you would grant us hearts to understand ourselves and our need, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear of the greatness of your love for your people in Christ Jesus, whom you sent as a propitiation for our sins. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
One of the joys of Facebook is that I get to peek in, so to speak, and engage in conversations with some of the people I went to high school with, uh, people um, who don't share the same view of life that I share. I think that's a positive, not a negative. It helps me to understand what people are thinking out there. And so one of them uh, who went to Notre Dame is very concerned about a state in this country that keeps trying to get creation back into the schools. And for him, that is a creation is a story. It is not a fact. And that points to uh, the reality that for many in our culture, uh, creation is story-like. It's mythological. It has no roots in reality. And sadly, uh, there was a study done recently among Christians in this country of Iceland. And amongst the younger Christians, almost none of them believed God was creator. So... It's an important sort of issue that comes up. And it's interesting to me that as I was studying for this, I came across uh, the notion that uh, scientists have struggled with the idea of creation as well. Not the same way we sort of struggle with it. But advancements in science and greater information and knowledge have created struggles for them too. For a long time, they had a more Greek understanding of the universe as one that was eternal. That had always been. Okay? And so when we have Hubble, for whom the telescope is named, uh, coming up with the, or discovering evidence of radiation that would indicate that there was a beginning of the universe that explained why it was that the other solar system, other systems seem to be moving farther away from our own, okay? There was no small amount of grumbling in the scientific community. For instance, British astronomer Sir Arthur Eddington in 1931 said, The notion of a beginning is repugnant to me. German chemist, so we get international here, German chemist Walter Nerast said, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the very foundations of science. Uh, how's that for a bold declaration by a chemist? Okay? I don't know the year he made that. Even Albert Einstein, who later would affirm the findings of Hubble, at first said, the circumstances, speaking of an initial moment of creation, irritates me. To admit such possibilities seems senseless. And so for when, when the, this idea scientifically emerged of a, a point of time, or a point of creation, many scientists took this as bad news because they saw it as pointing to a creation and therefore a creator. Okay. Now, they've sort of switched their tune, <laughs> and they've looked at this, and they, oh, okay, they, they've got an understanding of a beginning that is sustainable, so they think, within their framework, okay? Creation's a big deal because of where it brings us. 
because of what it says about us and about what it says about where we're going. And I don't know how much each of them individually grasped that, but because they're made in the image of God, they understood that intuitively that this mattered. Creation mattered to David. And we see David taking this incredible path, which is why I I say that um, my understanding of... When I talk about this path from creator to the God of the Bible to the reality of sin, okay, and so that people who deny creation are really ultimately trying to deny accountability to a creator and the removal of sin. It's a biblical concept that we see right here in Psalm 19, okay? Because that is the path David takes which seems in some ways, for some people, very artificial. But if you read this psalm, this is why some people have tried to chop it up. Oh, this is really a couple of songs stuck together. But there's a logic to what David does. And speaking of this psalm, C.S. Lewis notes that this is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And there's, um, that's part of the reason why so many hymns have been based out of this particular psalm. So... Our big idea is really the end of this psalm, but to cry out to him who is merciful. But we have a ways to go before we get there. And let's start with the the notion that the triune God reveals himself to us in creation. Yeah, that's a little different than what you've got. Things happen between Thursday and Sunday. That's just the way it is. Okay? The triune God reveals himself to us in creation. And this is really the focus of the first six verses of this particular psalm. This first part of the psalm concerns what we call general revelation. And all that means is that creation, which again, let's remember from John 1, as well as other places like Colossians and and Hebrews, that everything that was created was created through the Word or through the eternal Son. And so we don't separate Jesus from from the creation, the act of creating, Okay, he was a part of the act of creating, and so we get, let's tie this back into Jesus here, uh, you know, to, to keep that in mind. But creation testifies to God's existence. We see here he talks specifically about the heavens, about the sky, and then ultimately about the sun in them as representative of the rest of creation. He could have gone on for days talking about how creation. Uh, speaks to us about the Creator or Creator. But we see this weird piling up of verbs for inanimate things. Okay, He's not saying that the creation is alive and has mental capacities, but he's just communicating. A little bit of uh, anthropomorphism here. But the, the creation, we see it declaring, proclaiming, pouring out speech, Revealing knowledge. And so there's this great act of communication on the part of creation that we are intended to pick up on. And we don't need one of those, uh, you know, really big um, radar arrays like they have for listening posts that we see in, uh, I can't even remember that Jodie Foster movie anymore. But uh, there's, the creation here, in a sense, is, is gushing. 
It's gushing forth like a spring in this steady stream, this endless stream of revelation that most people completely tune out and miss. But David's tuned in to the right frequency. And he hears it speaking, even though it doesn't use words that are comprehensible to us. David contemplates the glory of God paralleled with his handiwork. And so the, the idea here is that the glory of God in this instance is not referring to his eternal glory that points to who he is as a person, but it's the glory that is revealed in the greatness of his works. And so he's contemplating the works and the providence of God in the beginning of this psalm. He's looking at creation. I'm not sure when he wrote this. It could have been when he was still a shepherd, kind of gazing out at the stars at night. It could have been when he was the king and sitting on his roof at night, pondering the greatness of what God has made. But it's speaking to him. It's communicating to him about the glory of God. What's interesting here is that that is the one reference to God in the first six verses, and it is the unusual word, El. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when we see the word God, it's translating um, Elohim. This time it translates El. It just means God. It's a generic word for God. And we'll see a contrast when we get to the second part of this psalm. So hang on to that thought. Don't let it go too far away, okay? So David contemplates and meditates upon the creation. But we see later on that Paul not only contemplates the creation, but contemplates the Scripture that contemplates the creation. He probably was thinking of this psalm among other songs when he wrote that part of Romans 1 that is familiar, hopefully, to us all. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning people, Jew and Gentile, are without excuse. And so the words that the creation speak, so to speak, refer to God's power, God's wisdom, God's creativity. When we think of the variety of plant life and animal life and insect life and all kinds of life, as well as the variety of landscapes that we see, uh, you know, I've had the fortunate reality of living in three different parts of this country, and they're all very different when you look at the landscapes. And they all have a beauty that speaks to the Creator. And the last two have had amazing sunsets. The first, I really couldn't see them because the trees were in the way. Okay? But you understand what I mean. And so David, I think, would encourage people like Eric, as well as non-scientists, to study creation, to lead them into, into the worship of God, to study creation in terms of the macro like Eric does, looking up and seeing these humongous things in space and the great distances and everything else, as well as the tiniest things, the microorganisms that exist that we can't see, or the things that are so far deep into the ocean that we cannot behold them yet. So they are a mystery to us. 
that as Christians we should not be afraid to study science in a sense. Because science will, should, if done rightly, help us to worship Him because we understand more of the creation and how He has made it. For instance, uh, two books by Paul Brand and Phil Yancey, uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and in His Image. Look at the human body and, and help, us to, help us to understand how God put the human body. It's, it's amazing when you think about the human body and how all of it has to work. It's an incredible system that that's where I kind of go with evolution. Really? Seriously? That came accidentally? That's why I struggle with that notion. In addition to um, the reality of God as creator in Genesis 1 and 2. But we can look at these things. We can study them. We can rejoice. We can worship. We can look at the stars. We can look at the seas and rejoice in what God has done. There are still many scientists who see order and they argue for this idea of intelligent design. And so I almost, I, I mentioned that to this old classmate of mine, the reality that just because you think creation or the notion of creation means a story, there are many, many scientists who affirm the idea of design, that creation is not an accident, that someone greater than us did this. But of course, creation only gets you to God. It doesn't get you to a particular God. It gets you to theism. And fortunately, when I was uh, in college and studying evolution and came to the realization of creation, I didn't stop at just, there's a God. I went further. Now, David goes a little deeper. He zeroes in on the sun. The biggest and the brightest body in the sky. A, a body which many people around him had worshipped. In fact, the Israelites came from Egypt, and one of the main gods in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. And so there's a polemical aspect to this psalm, saying this is part of the creation that tells of the true God. Don't worship it, but let it point you to the real God. But this idea of the sun, all of life depends upon the sun, there is no sun, there is no life. This is a barren rock floating in space. And actually floating, because we would have nothing to hold us in orbit anymore. But he goes, nothing is hidden from its heat. There's something about the sun, he thinks, that exposes all that we might see. And so creation ceaselessly communicates the fact that there is a God behind all that we see, and all that we know. Secondly, this same triune God reveals His will to us in the Scriptures. David turns from the book of creation, or as Spurgeon calls it, the book of the world, and now to the second book of Revelation, which we call special revelation, or the Scriptures. Spurgeon notes, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father, 
wrote them both. And they both speak, I would add, they both speak of my Father, and they both speak of his Son and his Spirit. They both have originated from Christ, the Word of God, and they agree, even though we often misunderstand one or both. It's possible, brothers and sisters, that when we think of the uh, various differences we see between science and Scripture, that it's possible we misunderstand the facts of science and we might misunderstand the facts of Scripture. Okay? Some people were overly literal and thought the world had four, four corners because of per- certain poetic portions of the Scripture. Okay? They misunderstood the Scriptures. It's possible that we might misunderstand the Scriptures. And before any of you go, wait a minute, what does Steve believe? I'm a six-day creation guy, okay? <laughs> so, I'm not trying to lead you down a bad road. I'm just pointing out that we might misunderstand Scripture sometimes, okay? Both originate from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When he's he's going to pile up all of these Nouns with regard to the scriptures, and I want to hit on the first one because you know it's the word law, and we we can often misunderstand that, particularly when we think of what the law produces. But law here is simply Torah, and it simply refers to the scriptures that David had at that point. It's the whole of instruction. It's not just the legal material. You shall do this. You shall not do that. And if you don't do what you're supposed to do, this shall happen to you. Okay? We have a tendency to narrow it down to that, and Paul uses it that way often in the New Testament. Okay? But in this instance, it's the broader thing, the reality of the the wholeness of Scripture, the instruction of Scripture. And so that's why Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's really a statement that's in line, probably built in meditation upon passages like this in Psalm 119. Okay, There's a harmony to Scripture both old and new, that we see and as we look at this and as we look at 2 Timothy 3. Now, I mentioned Psalm 119. This portion, these few verses of Psalm 19 are as if you know, Paul, uh, David took Psalm 119 with its uh, you know, well over 100 verses you know, and kind of went like this and inserted it in. This is a micro version, a mini version of the same thing. It, 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 it's almost indistinguishable in many ways from what we see in Psalm 119. And we see these words, not just law, but precepts, commandment, fear or respect, reverence, and rules. He uses six terms to describe the scriptures for us the special revelation that God has given His people. And with these six nouns, there are also six adjectives. For it is perfect or whole, complete. It is right. 
It is pure. It's, in other words, it's untainted by anything. It's clean. It's true or reliable. Okay? And so all of these adjectives about these six nouns point to the perfection and the goodness of God's instruction given to His people in the Scriptures. And then he has the effect. Six effects. We don't have time to go through all of these. As you're probably going, thanks. I'm glad Steve sees that. Let's hit the first one. Okay? Reviving the soul. It's that verb that we see oftentimes. It's, it's often uh, translated as repent or turn around. And so he's talking about how the Scripture turns around God's people because they were going in the wrong direction and this is what the means God uses to bring them back into the right direction, back towards a, a life that is lived for the glory and pleasure of God instead of the glory and pleasure of self. Okay? Now, again... If we think of law in, the, in that term just as, as legal command, that's not going to happen. If we see it as the broader instruction of Scripture, then we see it happening. And that's why we have the call to worship, not the call to worship, the confession of faith we had today. Okay? Because amongst the instruction of Scripture is that story of Moses interacting with God after the people of God had built the uh, the golden calf, which just came out of the fire that way, according to Aaron. Okay, God is uh, sorry. Moses is up in the mountain and he wants to see God's glory, and so God says, "Yes, I'll let you see the behind parts of me," and He declares His name to Moses. And the name that he declares includes this idea that he is slow to anger and that he is abounding in loving kindness or or covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, however you want to put it. He's abounding in that and he is full of mercy. Unless we understand he is full full of mercy, we will not run to him when we sin. We will run away from him when we sin. We will be like Adam and Eve, hiding in the bushes, afraid of God, instead of saying, coming to Him and saying, I did it again. Have mercy on me. And so this, this revelation of His character is not just kind of encapsulated and, and kept you know, like hermeneutically sealed in Exodus 34, but we see that David meditates upon this repeatedly throughout the Psalms. That's why we had so many Psalms that reflect this. And I, th- I think that his idea here is reflective of that, even if it's not explicitly mentioned. And we see a lot of what Paul writes is really reflections on the earlier instruction from the Old Testament. And what this indicates to me is that Paul didn't know so much of the Scripture because Paul was an apostle and it's his job to know so much of the Scriptures. 
Paul knew so much of the Scriptures and meditated upon the Scriptures precisely because he loved God. And he wanted to know Him better. And the only place to know who He is is the Scriptures. Because all he can know is, his, is God's power and His wisdom through creation. If he wants to know His character, he must go to the Scriptures. And so must we, if we want to know the character of God, that we might trust Him and entrust ourselves to Him. In addition to reviving the soul, we see that it makes wise. Rejoicing the heart means not that you should walk around all day smiling, but that there is indeed, there is profound joy in your life, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sadness, because you know who God is through the Scriptures. There's an enlightening of the eyes. There's a sense that the Scriptures endure forever and that they are righteous. Just two passages to illustrate or to uh, reaffirm two of these. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The enlightening of the eyes so that we know the path we're supposed to walk. Jesus speaking in, in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, they endure forever because they are the words of Jesus the man who was also fully God. And so we see that the Word of God has this tremendous effect on David. It had a tremendous effect on the apostles as well. And it's intended to have an incredible effect, a tremendous effect on you and me. Why doesn't it have more of an effect? Sometimes it's because we only believe parts of it. And for each of us, that might be different. Some of us are perhaps inclined to see the justice of God and we want to avoid the mercy or we have our difficult times hearing the mercy of God. And so we live in this uh, uh, improper fear of God. Some of us perhaps like the mercy, mercy, mercy and don't want to hear the justice of God. And so we have a hard time believing God is just. And so we're soft on sin. You know, we don't really care about the fact that people sin. It's a big party. Come on in. Everyone's a sinner. Just don't worry about it. And not reckoning with the justice of God. We all have defaults. A default system by which we screen things out. And we have to bring that to Jesus. Fix my default system so that I understand your scriptures as they are, and I'm not doing a Thomas Jefferson, cutting out the parts I don't like or I don't agree with or I don't really understand. Okay. David continues, just as he continued with you know, talking about the greatness of the Son, he talks here in terms of the scriptures, they are priceless, they're sweet. I like that our Psalm 119 characterized this as well. They're, they're, they're better than gold, much fine gold or refined gold. Okay, so he's used both those terms here. Not just the gold you might dig up, but also that which has gone through the purifying fire and now all the impurities are gone. The good gold. Sweeter than honey. Desirable. Beautiful to taste. 
He wants to encourage you to treasure the Scriptures. But there's a warning as well. Like a double-edged sword, there is blessing and there is cursing. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And the implication being, you're warned, disobedience has a great price. It judges us, we don't judge it. Perhaps it was passages like this that Paul was meditating on when he wrote Hebrews, or not Paul, whomever wrote Hebrews 4. Uh, some people think it was Paul, I don't. But I'm so used to saying Paul. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so it's, it's as if the word is alive, and because it's God's word, it's almost like it's God himself who's examining us in the midst of this. And so just like with the sun, there's nothing that can be hidden from its glare, it's from its heat. Nothing is hidden from the gaze of the Scriptures. Nothing is hidden from the gaze of God, not even the intentions of the heart, which is what leads us to the cry, the cry of his heart, pardon and preserve me. See, David has been dealing with all of these things external to himself, and now he, he it inevitably leads back to himself, and he realizes, just like I realized in college, this God cares about how I live. And I'm in trouble. David cries out. And so should we, because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And by that, that just means disobedience. We've not lived as God has lived as Jesus. And there's this first cry, who can discern his errors? David comes face to face with the reality that many of his sins were hidden from his eyes. God knew them. David didn't. It's the same thing for you. You have very little understanding of your own sins. They are far greater than you think they are. We are, in fact, ignorant of most of our sins. They are such a part of us. They're, such a, they're so woven into the fabric of who we are that often we can't even see them or, or we don't understand them as sins. We have blind spots. And my blind spots might be different than your blind spots, but we all have blind spots. Okay, When I drive my CRV, I have a, a, a blind spot. Not the normal blind spot. I mean, you know, the ones you're supposed to look and see. Okay, yeah, there's no one over there. I've got this booster seat in the back, and it's got a high back, and I can't see through the booster seat. I'm not Superman. I could be in trouble one day because <laughs> of this blind spot I've got. 
there could be something there that I can't perceive with my side mirrors or my vision that could cause problems. That is us. We have blind spots. And David knows it, and he cries out. Calvin notes that Satan has so many devices by which he deludes and blinds our minds that there is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sins. This is why Jack Miller cries out, Cheer up! You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. (laughs) And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. So David says, in light of this knowing, declare me innocent, David wants to be pardoned. And David understands because of Leviticus, which we read, that there were, there were offerings that were made for the unintentional sins and the sins you didn't know about. And all of that points to Christ, who is the atonement, not just for the sins you know about, but the sins you don't know about, which are far greater in number than the ones you do know about. And that is really for your good, brothers and sisters, because if you really knew how bad you are, you'd give up all hope. Okay? You really don't want to know how bad you are. And I don't want to know how bad you are, and I don't want to know how bad I am. What I know is already bad enough. Okay? David, therefore, has confidence that God would pardon these sins, not just from Leviticus 4, but also from that revelation of of God on the mountain to Moses, Exodus 34. He knows that's who God is, and he says, be that God to me. Be it to me. We should have that same confidence because we have Christ. Christian, Christ has borne the curse of your sins so that you could gain the blessings of His obedience. That's why we have places like Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ, or united to Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So, Jesus bore the brunt of our sin so that we could gain the blessing of his obedience. But David doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the the hidden sins of his life. He also says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. In other words, preserve me from going crazy. (laughs) From going down really bad roads. And that's the idea of the presumptuous sin. Okay? In other places you see it, it's called the the sin, sinning with a high hand. And that's the idea of you know it's sin. And you pursue it anyway. 
premeditated sort of sin. I don't know how many of you know a murderer. I do. His murder was an act of rage. He, uh, he didn't plan on it. It happened. He's guilty. The presumptuous sin, the high-handed sin, would be premeditated murder. Planning out how you're going to kill this person. Or planning out how you're going to have an affair. Or planning out how you're going to steal from somebody. When you've, been, you've seen all the warning signs, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. In the Scripture, in the God's people, don't do it. He knows that these sins can dominate a soul. We all struggle with temptation. And so all of us must pray to be held back from it so that we aren't entangled by that sin and made to serve that sin. Not ultimately. We know that in Christ, the domination of sin has been relieved from us. We saw that in Romans 6. But for a time, we can come under the imperfect bondage of a sin as we give ourselves over to it. That's addiction. That's what the world calls addiction. He continues. May the words of my heart, sorry, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Hey, we sang that song. Thoughts and words, not just deeds. David knows that he has a problem with his thoughts and his words and not simply his deeds. And he longs for those thoughts and words to also be pleasing to God, not just his deeds. And so David, recognizing the pervasiveness of sin in his own life, calls out for an equal pervasiveness of grace. He ends his cry with the reality that God is his rock. God is his protection. When God passed by, what did Moses do? He hid in the cleft of the rock until God had passed by and then it was safe for him to come out. God is our safety, our rock of protection. He's also the Redeemer, the One who has bought us back from our slavery to sin. And so, what I want us to see is what Zach Erskine in his book, The Imperfect Pastor, calls the Gospel Waltz. Um, I'm not big at dancing. I don't dance well. And so maybe I'd choose a different term than the gospel waltz. <laughs> but he wants us to understand that there are three, what he calls movements, because it's the idea of a dance. And so there's dance movements. And if you want to talk more about that, there are people here who actually do dance. I will not give their names right now. Um, he talks about these three moments as confessing our sin and sinfulness, receiving the fullness of Christ, and then walking in a way. And in this book on the imperfect pastor, he notes that oftentimes an individual or a congregation, part of their problem is they're missing one of the movements. 
And so pastorally, you need to teach and instruct them in that one movement so that they're dancing the right dance and they're not dancing a, a misshapen, ugly sort of dance. There are many people who try to who, who walk, but who've never received the fullness of Christ. They're legalists. They're depending upon their obedience to please God. And usually they're miserable people. There are others who are full of pride precisely because they've never confessed their sin and sinfulness. You see, here in this psalm, we have the whole waltz. We have the reality of our sin and sinfulness. We have the reality of Redeemer. And we have the reality of walking with God. We're going to talk more about this next week. But I, want, I just want to lay the, the groundwork for the idea of, of this waltz and thinking about your life and where you tend to skip a movement. And therefore, what you need to grow so that you're not only dancing a misshapen dance, but that you're, you're living a beautiful life. You're not misshapen as a result. So we see in this psalm that God speaks to us in every waking moment. And sometimes we're asleep. Because it always talks about nighttime. Everything that the Father, Son, and Spirit made testifies that He exists, that He is powerful, uh, that God is wise and creative. But He's also given us the Scriptures to help us understand creation especially ourselves as part of creation, and to understand our need for Christ. The Scriptures reveal a God who is merciful and just. And so when we feel overwhelmed by our sin, when, even when we don't, let us cry out to a merciful high priest who does indeed freely pardon as well as preserve all who call upon Him to the praise of His glorious grace. And so, as you read and believe His two books, are you reading the two books? Have you neglected one? Favor the other? They're meant to be side by side. Are you believing in the Savior and in the Son that the second book points to? Or are you skipping the receiving of the fullness of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we could have spent days in this psalm. Thank you for its richness. Thank you for the greatness of this psalm, the beauty of this psalm. But may it not simply be something outside of us, but may you use it indeed to do as, you ta as David talks about, to restore our souls, to rejoice our hearts, to make us clean and pure by pointing us to Jesus, the one who does all of these things and more. Help us to hear this psalm as it's intended to be heard.
not as do this and live, but that this is what you will do for us because of what you have done for us and your Son. Help us to hear this through the cry of you are being our rock and redeemer. So we don't cower, but that we run to you. Father, we're so prone to run away. And I ask that you would grant us the kind of faith that runs to you. Because there is no place else for us to go. And you will promise us life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.